For the last several years in Washington, a debate has raged as to the appropriate roles of industry, academia, and the NIH for R&D in the biopharma sector. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and today I'm speaking with Kate Hudson. Kate is the Associate Vice President and Counsel for Policy at the Association of American Universities. Her portfolio includes intellectual property, technology transfer, public access, data privacy, and copyright issues. She's extremely busy. She also (laughs) served as Senior Advisor to the Legislative and Executive Branches, most recently with the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the GAO. Kate, really, thank you for your hospitality. Thank you so much for asking me. We've seen each other on numerous times and conferences (laughs) and conversations and little boxes on our computers. Yes. we actually meet face to face. First time. So how long have you been out of the GAO and have you been here? At the so uh, I left government in uh, 2022 in February. So I've been with AAU just a little over a year now. Wow. So transition during COVID. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how are the roles different for you? Because you used to work, mm-hmm. you know, the government accounting office, that's the, mm-hmm. those are the definition of bean counters you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you were the, yes. and you were the lawyer to bean counters yes. now you're dealing with academics yes. i don't think you could get two more it's different a very it's a very different transition it definitely definitely is moving from from government um outside of government is a huge transition in and of itself and then being in an oversight agency like the gao um is is a great experience because you learn a lot about all of the inner workings of government, whether you work in that agency or not. Um, as legal counsel for the in, the engagement teams, the audit teams, um, getting to work on just literally everything from what's what's um, in the headlines this week to very what everyone else would think are very like in the weeds slogging anodyne like just completely like but somebody has to do that work right someone has to go through that data demand the documents from the agencies to to shine a light on on whether they're spending uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars appropriately, whether the program is being efficiently run, those kinds of concerns that both the Comptroller General, but also that Congress has. And, and so GAO has a really unique mission in the federal government. And I was really lucky to have that kind of experience there at the end of my career. Now, we've gotten to know each other because we've been very concerned and been working on a lot of the issues of marching rights Mm -hmm. in the NIH data. Obviously, university research plays a pivotal role in the U.S. biopharma ecosystem. How does the Association of American Universities help those institutions navigate the policy world and, you know, the basic chaos and insanity of D.C.? (laughs) Well, in, in, in very um, simple terms. We are we are their people in D.C. We are their association. Um, we are both a, a vital source of information and intelligence for them and our experience in watching the developments in Congress and working with executive agencies, advising them on what's happening right now, what's, you know, play by play, real time, what's happening right now, as well as how we see things playing out um, over, over the longer term. You know, getting to interfa- interface with members of Congress and uh, federal agencies on their behalf as well. That can be, you know, that can be everything from taking um, our association's consensus on a specific issue right to the lawmakers or the policymakers or the decision makers in the federal government. It can also um, provide (laughs) some cover for universities that may not want to take a public stance. We can also act as a voice, as a combined voice as an association. And 
you're one of the people whose voices is used. So you're yes. one of the folks going on the Hill representing how many U.S. universities do you guys? So we have 63 U.S. Wow. and two Canadian, um, all R1 on the Carnegie scale. Um, so they're top tier, top tier top research universities yes. and you folks are representing them on the Hill. Yep. Obviously, a lot of the action that, that you and I have been dealing with is the Bayh-Dole Act yes. for those folks who don't know. The Wall Street Journal, for example, in 1980 said it was one of the three policies that gave the U.S. jobs economy, giving professors and lab teams an enormous incentive to put commercial use and plans and ideas for inventions. So essentially, it's seen as one of the big three top legislative passages that's really turbocharged the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Wall Street Journal is overstating that, or do you believe that that's true, that the Bayh-Dole Act is revolutionary in that sense? I, I believe that it's true. I, I believe that it's, it is one of the uh, greatest public policy achievements that has come out of the United States. The, the first being, or the second, I should say, being, you know, like our national parks. This is a unique idea that um, American policymakers had. And to see it implemented and to see just the absolute foundational impact that it has had on the entire innovation ecosystem, research enterprise writ large in the United States, it is what, it is the piece of legislation that makes us a combination of all of those unique elements in the American economy and with um, and with academia and our private industry. It's what makes it work. And specifically, what does it do? So the Bayh-Dole Act allows when research is federally funded, so the federal government, uh, our federal agency funds a research grant or a research project. And it's not just the NIH, right? It can be no. the military. It can be anything. It's There are a, a whole host of government agencies that pay for um, federally funded research at my universities. It's it's not just NIH, it's DOD, it's energy, uh, it's commerce, it's, I mean, it's NASA, it's NSF, like there's a very broad range um, of agencies that provide federal, federal dollars for university research. And so what Bayh-Dole allows is that that research money has been given to the university to perform that research. Now, what comes out of that research, if it is potentially can be patentable, Right or needs to be protective or further further um, developed and later patented, it allows for the university to retain that intellectual property instead of the federal government. So before the Bayh-Dole Act, things lived in the federal government. It would be brought to D.C. Mm -hmm. and put, you know, the, the patents would be put in a box somewhere, yep. and then you'd have to talk to some person behind a desk and try and get access to them. Yep. And this allowed the academics then to cut deals and commercialize, basically, with yep. federally funded research. Yeah. I, in, the, the discoveries that were made literally sat on a shelf and were not commercialized. They were not brought to market. They were not further developed before the passage of the Bayh-Dole Act. And this is what changed that entire mechanism for federally funded research in the United States. So if we look at the Bayh-Dole legislation, there's a provision in there that's been causing a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. And those are called marching rights. Mm -hmm. For example, in January, a group of 25 senators led by Elizabeth Warren requested that HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra exercise marching rights under the Bayh-Dole legislation for a drug called Extandi, mm -hmm. which is a prostate cancer treatment. What was Elizabeth Warren trying to do with marching rights? What was the objective? So the objective there is to use marching rights to march in and have the government take control of the license 
that Extandi had been given, right, or the, or the other protections that Extandi itself had been given, and to allow the federal government to basically march in, grab that IP, and mandate that it be licensed to a different producer at a better price. And the IP had been created at one of your member universities. Yes, UCLA. UCLA. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of your members, what is their opinion <laughs> of Mar- well, What is UCLA? I'm sure you've been speaking to them. What have right. they been saying about this? Um, the Extandi um, petition uh, and this is the mul- the second petition specifically on Xtandi. Yeah. But this uh, <laughs> this debate obviously predates my time at AAU. But yeah, it's not I will, just from last year. <laughs> it's not just from last year. <laughs> um, but in terms of what our members think about marching rights, it's to exercise it would be extremely detrimental. This is the foundation on which our all of our federally funded research and our entire university tech transfer enterprise sits on. This is the piece of legislation that it sits on. So anything that is changed or exercised impacts that and has a huge impact on that. Had the Marchin been successful, yeah. what would have been the reaction of the patent holders from UCLA? What yeah. would they have thought about it this? Would have been, it would have really had a devastating effect, not just on the individual patent holders for Xtandi, but the fact that Marchin had been exercised for the first time. So Marchin has never been exercised by the federal government, and we and our members want it to stay that way. Right. Marchin has a very narrow, specific purpose. Which is what? Which is, it, it's, it functions as an emergency hatch, so to speak, for the government. So let's say we have a company that licenses a technology or, or a development or a compound and then just sits on it in order to prevent competition with another, with, with their own products. Right, so maybe they buy up the market and they're just sitting, they're like squatting on that IP and they're not bringing it to market. They're not making it publicly available in a, reason, in a, in a decent manner, right? They're not doing what they should do with the license. That is when March In can be exercised by the federal government to force that relinquishment of that and for it to be brought to market by another licensee. So the traditional interpretation of March and Rights has been about exploitation. So if the patents are not being utilized, they've been funded by the government and they're still sitting on that shelf, Mm -hmm. but yet they have residual value that can be used by Mm -hmm. society. The government can say, hey, you're not using this or you're being completely rent seeking and, you know, hostile in your negotiations. You're not playing fair. We can come in and then try and distribute this so it's exploited. That's that's the point. Yes. So that it's used, so that it is brought to market. Yes. So on Monday, March 20th, roughly a month ago, the National Institutes of Health rejected the request for March in on Xtandi. What's the situation now? So this has gone mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. It has not happened despite you know an enormous amount yeah. of political pressure in this town. It was basically one of the only things anyone was talking about mm-hmm. for a couple months. Mm-hmm. So what's the next step? What occurs now? Great. So, I mean, the, the Xtandi petition failing for the second time was great news for us. I will, you know, as they announced that decision, they also at the same time announced that a, a government-wide review of Marchin would be taking place, um, or interagency review. And so my understanding is that that is taking place, and that's to review Bidel and Marchin as a whole. Our community definitely saw that as kind of a an olive branch to some of the patient advocates groups that were asking for Marchin to be exercised on prices. Sure. The outcome of that government ride review. Has it started? You know, I I haven't seen anything confirmed. I haven't haven't seen anything confirmed or announced, but 
you know, I, we are, we are waiting for information just like everybody else. So it's supposed to be an interagency panel yes. run by Department of Commerce, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, NIST. In, yeah, yeah. Part of Commerce. Part, yeah. part of Commerce. And so what are the next steps there? So we're just waiting mm-hmm. to hear if something's really going to occur then, I guess. Right. So they're going to, my understanding is that they are going to take a full scope look at what criteria must absolutely be met and examples of that for March in to solidify the, the criteria. I, I don't see the need for a government-wide review. Personally, we already have criteria. We have case law on this. Like, it's, it's very clear. That's why, you know, myself and others feel like this is kind of a fig leaf, so to speak. Sure. To show patient advocates and, and others who are calling for March in that they are listening or they're trying to ameliorate the situation, but there's really nothing legal or or otherwise policy or otherwise that that can really get them to that conclusion. You know, I live in Europe and we've been dealing with the issue of compulsory license, which is mm-hmm. sort of analogous mm-hmm. to marching rights. And mm-hmm. essentially the argument you get is, well, in Eastern Europe, these drugs are too expensive, so the governments cannot afford to pay for them, mm-hmm. not allowing these drugs to be exploited in these countries. Mm-hmm. So that is a medical emergency. And thus they fall into the TRIPS waivers of March of compulsory licensing. So mm-hmm. we can come in and then actually start manufacturing or give these patents away. Mm-hmm. Do you see a similar line of logic trying to be applied to March in where the provisions of price be- are, are now so quote unquote confiscatory or impossible mm-hmm. to bypass that mm-hmm. people aren't getting access. Is this going to be, I mean, this is Ellen Tahone and Groningen University with the WTO. Mm-hmm. This has been her position mm-hmm. for 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Do you see them trying to go in this direction? If you look at the denial of this petition, what I thought stood out so much was that when you look at the criteria of, around public availability, yeah. right, that is where a lot of previous marching advocates have kind of tried to hang their hat it's not, they don't feel that because of the price, it's not publicly available, right? That has been their argument. I personally think that that argument is going to shift, like you said, with the TRIPS waiver, shift to this is a public health crisis or this is a public emergency. So we need to use it be under emergency measures kind of things. If, if they were to go anywhere with it, I would imagine that would be the place that it would happen. And if you look at, say, for example, the TRIPS waiver that was just applied mm-hmm. to mRNA under the WTO. Yes. Ten years ago, this started in Europe. These actions started in Europe. The Gastein Conference, Clemens Martin Hour, the European Public Health Alliance, we saw a lot of activity around this. And we started coming to the U.S. going, uh, hey, this is coming your way. And everyone's yeah. like, ha, 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 this yeah. shot. That'll <laughs> never happen here. You know, yeah. and lo and behold, here yeah. we are, yes. eight, eight years later, mm-hmm. bam, mRNA yep. given away, the technology yeah. platform. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be political traction in that direction. Mm-hmm. You, are you as sanguine as others that, no, this will never happen in the U.S.? Not necessarily. I mean, I think with the Xtandi petition, we, I mean, we were really having some heartburn. We were sure. really, we were kind of, you know, we were all just waiting, kind of holding our breath because we know that it, that that is the, the, the break in the dam, so to speak. Right. That, you know, apart, separate and apart from the Xtandi decision itself, what kind of precedent and what that would mean for everything that could be uh, affected by Marchin, and and literally everything can be affected by Marchin. It's not it's not purely about 
drugs and diagnostics and therapeutics. It's any government funding for any technology. Anything anything that my, and my universities are involved in all of that research, every piece of it. And so if suddenly, if, if price is a new criteria, it would just have catastrophic impact on our entire research enterprise. It's hard to overstate it. (laughs) Like I think people just, they take, they almost take Bidol for granted here. Um, Sometimes when I talk to university tech transfer managers, they were not in their jobs in 1940, right? Their jobs are are a a creation of the post-Bidol enactment. And I think that they almost take it for granted that it could be here forever. When, you know, if you start piercing it because of price, like that will just absolutely cascade. And this is a very delicate, balanced innovation ecosystem as it is with academia, private sector, and federal research funding. Like that those are the those are three parts of it. And it's delicate as it is. But creating this kind of uncertainty around it really it's like taking one of the legs off of a three legged three peg chair. And if you look at say Stanford University with all of their IT and everything mm-hmm. that's happened in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. La Jolla, mm-hmm. not just not just in biotech, but also in medical diagnostics, University Mm -hmm. of Minnesota, Mayo Mm -hmm. Clinic, transplant technologies. I mean, this could become huge. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've talked about the the research about this. Um, You know, sometimes it is hard to trace things all the way back to federal research and, and to different discoveries that universities made that have, you know, over time have led to different technologies being uh, evolving out of that, right? If we're suddenly demanding anything that can be traced back to a single dollar of federal funds, that is going to be a really dangerous exercise because like when you measure the federal contribution to the private sector uh, contribution, especially in biopharma, it's extremely outsized. You know, you could have a compound that was discovered on the backs of a $500,000 federal grant, but the the um, you know biopharma company that then took that and put two billion dollars into clinical trials and further development. You know who who has who has more who has more in that right? And, yeah, the and skin in the game. Like you know how is how is the government going to exercise a license with a sm- much an infinitely much smaller contribution than the private sector is putting in? This gets to a study that we published in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science where we looked at. Uh, we went back to the year 2000 because it generally takes 20 years for mm-hmm. a discovery to become applied in healthcare. So right. we said, okay, let's go back 20 years and let's look at everything in six core areas of the NIH where we would expect 20 years ago, given everything that's been coming to market, we would have expected to see a lot of federal funding. And we did. Mm-hmm. We found 23,000 some odd grants. I mean, mm-hmm. that's an enorm- it was an enormous yeah. amount of research. Yes. You know, and, and then from that, we found 8,000 patents. And mm-hmm. what was intriguing is overwhelmingly, you could predict an FDA approval of one of these patents and discoveries based on the amount of traction it had in the private sector. Mm -hmm. So the more the private sector picked up on one of these innovations, Mm -hmm. the more likely it was to come to market. And it was a statistical model. You could actually predict it. You could build a model and say, okay, the private sector is given X. Mm -hmm. We would expect this much of a probability of market entry. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we had a, a weak statistical signal that said the more of a percentage there is from the federal government, the less likely it was mm-hmm. to come to market. Mm-hmm. Can a university successfully bring a new drug to market without the private sector? Does there need to be that partnership? There, there absolutely needs to be that partnership. Our universities do 
a, you know, an enormous amount of research. We do an enormous amount of, of, of fundamental research and research that leads to pieces that private industry then takes and develops. So a lot of what universities um, discover or develop are at a much earlier stage. They need that further development by private industry. So yes, I they they have to. We ha- we have to have private industry to bring a, a drug all the way to market. Is that understood on the hill? You know, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so. What are we doing wrong? Because this is our job, right? <laughs> I don't. It, you know, it, honestly, a lot of a lot of staffers that I talk to just do not understand the innovation pipeline. Period. They don't know about tech transfer. They don't understand that we are all in that ecosystem together and that we're each a really important part of it. I think that they don't necessarily understand that it's harmful to harm that ecosystem. Like harming our universities will impact the ability of them to develop things for private sector to take on. So I don't think that they necessarily see that like holistically, they don't see that pipeline. They don't understand how drugs actually get to market themselves or other types of discoveries. Like they just don't, they don't understand what technolo- technology transfer is. And so a lot of my job is going up there and just educating on the basics and then explaining the legal framework that allows for this and how it needs to be protected. You were at the GAO when this all went down. There was a very interesting, interesting, <laughs> I'm putting this in air quotes, there was a study that came out during the peak of COVID, 2020, mm-hmm. 2021. Mm-hmm. And E. Katrina Cleary, an academic, had published some research in STAT. And she had said that Gilead's drug remdesivir that was used to treat COVID had received over $6 billion of government funding. And the U.S. Congress asked the GAO to check this out. (laughs) And the GAO came back with a report that said, well, actually, the number was zero. I actually was not on that engagement. I was I was not. Plausible um, deniability. Plausible deniability. Um, I was not on that engagement, but that wouldn't necessarily, um, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me. Yeah. yeah, but it goes to your point that yeah. you, you look for an analyte or something that mm-hmm. was invented in the 50s that then is quoted in a patent portfolio mm-hmm. of something else. Yeah. And then, okay, that's yeah, a discovery. Yeah, it builds that, on yes, it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and unfortunately, I think we have a lot of very naive people who think that that's, that means that you own the whole thing. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't, people don't see that that is one one piece of it. And that just because a compound is developed doesn't mean that then you own the patent to the drug that may, that uses that compound in some way in the development of a drug, right? You don't own the entire thing then. You, this is what you discovered. And this, and this could be used in, you know, 30 different ways. And one company that has been licensed to do it has developed it into the the you know into the product that they're going to bring to market and that's that's like that's theirs right that's different than the original compound i'd like to go back and discuss that world trade organization ruling on mrna if we can the wall street journal again the editorial board said and i'm going to quote here that decision was quote a vehicle to raid u.s innovation that will benefit china and set a precedent that erodes intellectual property protection Mm -hmm. putting on your ip lawyer hat Mm -hmm. What do you think about the decision broadly? What are your members saying about it? So I think that we have the answer already um, from whether was the vaccine TRIPS waiver effective. I think we already have that answer. No country has announced intent to utilize the waiver for vaccines. 
and it's been decided for 15, 16 months now. June of June of last year. June of last year. Sorry. Yeah. So we've had this time, and no country has even announced intention to use the vaccine IP that was at issue here. I think that is a really, I think that's a really telling answer that all of that consternation and discussion and debate, like that no one is using it. Like we've now weakened IP and we weakened the IP system, or at least shown that the World Trade Organization, they want to (laughs) weaken IP in a way that benefits some of the the countries that are affected and and they need vaccines. Like we're not debating that they need the vaccines, but the problem is the intellectual property isn't the hurdle here. The hurdle in uh, especially countries in the global South is it's infrastructure and distribution and access. It's not the intellectual property itself that is the stumbling block for them. That's why like no one has announced that they are going to use it because it... (laughs) That's not the problem over there. But the mRNA technology platform as a whole was initially developed as an anti-cancer vector. Yes. And what concerns us at our firm Mm -hmm. at Vital Transformation and the research we've done, you know, a state actor like, say, Brazil Mm -hmm. or South Korea Mm -hmm. or, dare I say, China, Mm -hmm. having access now, unfettered access to Mm -hmm. the raw IP without Mm -hmm. any fear of prosecution or reprisal seems to us to be extremely not just short-sighted, but foolhardy at mm-hmm. the very best. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was done as a as sort of a caveat and a, a Scooby snack <laughs> to the global South. I think it yeah. was done for activists, and I think it puts a lot of future research at peril. Yeah. This is one of our two core technology yeah. platforms with CAR-T, I'd argue, that are going to be pushing the next generation. You know, CRISPR-Cas9 could mm-hmm. certainly also fall into that category. Thank God they didn't give that away. Mm-hmm. What does this portend then yeah. for other? Are we going to see other? Oh, well, the other groundbreaking technology then that we're just the WTO is going. We'll give that away now too. That that is very. That's a very real concern for us, and that's you know that's why we voiced our opposition to it uh, originally when it was when it was about the mRNA, and we are voicing our opinion now in the context of the ITC investigation about the expansion of the waiver to therapeutics and diagnostics. The precedents that these will set. Well, again, it's going to damage that ecosystem that is so vital. When you have uncertainty and perceived weakening and very real weakening of IP legal protections, that just infects the entire the entire infrastructure in which biomedical in- innovations and, and drugs are developed. Like it just, it infects all of it. If you're not going to have intellectual property protections, it extremely disincentivizes individuals in venture capital, in pharma, putting enormous amounts of capital straight into it. And quite frankly, if we can't protect it, I mean, our universities want to perform research, but if there's no end of the rainbow there to it, you may get some reticence there or they choose to research something else and not an innovation that will eventually, hopefully, bring something to market to benefit the public. If something is marched in on or if we continue to confiscate intellectual property do you just see the industry saying sorry we're just not going to work with your members we're just going to walk away because the risks go up we just can't handle that yeah absolutely i mean if it if you have one piece that that is the uncertainty and it's us then yeah then they'll then they'll walk away from projects money will always get spent capital (laughs) goes to where it's most loved right so (laughs) the money you know the, the money will go other places and our universities, like many other flagship universities, we are a, a vital component of the local economy as well. And so when we don't 
make those strides and build those those rapports with with private actors and continue to to grow that economic development in our university in our local communities and expand if we don't do that that puts that's not just some pie in the sky like at the world trade organization issue that is on the ground in our states all across the country yeah these are real academics this, doing real work in the right, local community right and all of the peripheral industries that grow from that all of the suppliers and the everything from you know the ones that fabricate the labs and the offices that they do their research in it's all affected by that the secondary and tertiary effects would be enormous and we would just be viewed as an avenue that wouldn't be super certain in an area where there's already so much risk <laughs> involved. Yeah. 90% of all drugs fail. Right, exactly. There's already such a huge risk calculation. Just adding more uncertainty about the baseline legal protections, that is not a good story for my universities to be telling. So yesterday, the European Commission published their pharmaceutical review. Mm -hmm. And one of the key provisions in there, which was in there in the leaked document that came out a few months ago, what the European Commission has done in the pharmaceutical sector is reduced data protection Mm -hmm. by two years. Mm. So they've pulled it from 10 years down to eight in total. Does that concern you that you're seeing sort of momentum being gained in other markets? Yeah. Our American research enterprise, we compete with other countries. I mean, we compete for talent, we compete for resources. We compete for intellectual property, yeah. right? We are competing against them. You know, even allied countries. We are we are still competing, and the EU, you know, representing a large chunk and and starting to set those kinds of standards from an American competitive standpoint. Like we like we should definitely be setting those. <laughs> and the problem is, we've seen a lot of these bad ideas that have been yeah. being approached in Europe and actually applied start mm-hmm. to drift this way. I mean, yeah. obviously the trips waiver yeah. started yes. started in it. Yeah. In Europe. It's definitely something where American competitiveness needs to, there's a lot of talk in Washington about that and what that means and what kind of policy solutions that means. And for me, I mean, I know I'm biased because I work in this area, but strengthening and protecting our intellectual property system should be like a number one priority. Obviously, funding chips and domestic reshoring of manufacturing of uh, semiconductors, right, obviously and growing our domestic talent pool, but protection of the, IP, of the IP that we already have. We already have a strong IP system. It's just being weakened and, it, like you said, eroded and practices by other countries that are being transported over here. Those are things that really contribute to our future in competitiveness and innovation. Those are the things that should be the priority right now. So we have this bi-dole meeting that will occur, this multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder group run by the administration at mm-hmm. some level. Mm-hmm. Where do you see Baidol landing, you know, 24 months from now? It's tough to tell. It, I really don't want to be like a sky is falling kind of person. <laughs> but, you know, if there was ever a time that Baidol was more in jeopardy, this is it. Especially the continued pushes. And if we change it to a public health crisis angle with that, that could wedge the door open. I'm really hopeful that that doesn't happen. In two years, I hope that we are continuing to defend Bidole in the same form it is now with renewed calls to strengthen our IP system. I hope that we can iron out some of the policies that just aren't working and that are not pro-innovation or not pro-patenter, right, and are actually more pro-infringement. I hope that we can rectify those and continue to have a really strong IP system in two years from now. And Bidole is a big 
part of that. So I hope that Baidol does not get marched in on. The only reason I have trepidation about that is because of the government-wide review, that normally when they deny a petition, it's denied and we're done. That's an interesting question then. Do you see them potentially opening up the legislation, trying to change it? You know, you're not going to be able to do it from an intra, intra an interagency. That would need to go back to the Congress. But if that's their recommendation to Congress, and then it would be taken up from there, from the review. But, you know, maybe this is a time when having a really contentious Congress is a blessing. For, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Make, the I first mean, time I've heard that, Kate. Listen, I, I'm in federal relations. We make lemonade, okay? So we make lemonade. So maybe maybe it's a good thing that things are very fractious and contentious and they couldn't pass anything on it Well, right I'm now, seeing so. truckloads of lemons showing up right <laughs> Literally train cars. I mean, just call me a perpetual optimist. But <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, from there, that is what we're all waiting to see is like, what are the recommendations out of that? They're not going to be able to, they can, whether it's lawful or not, whether it's, you know, going to be challenged or not, make a whole cloth, you know, alterations to those criteria. Yeah, legality hasn't seemed to been part of many of these EOs, executive orders that have been coming out of late. You well, know. you know, as someone who used to write them, uh, you know, <laughs> you don't want to see how the sausage is made. You really do not want to see how the sausage is made. Kate Hudson, eternal optimist, American Associated <laughs> Universities. Kate, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Thanks you very so much, much for, for having me. My pleasure. Bye-bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.